0: Welcome to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, a weekly discussion that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. That's D H A R M A Media.com. All right, welcome everyone to Conversations. Good to be back with Z. So, Z, today we're talking about the Cosmic Circus. And we just had a pretty interesting discussion. You were giving me this analogy about UFOs traveling through trillions of miles at near the speed of light, coming from advanced civilizations, and they're coming and they're hitting the frontier of humanity. So they're entering the Earth's atmosphere, they're hovering around, they're excited to meet their Earth cousins and see what this civilization is all about. And they've gotten new a sufficient level of advancement, a sufficient consciousness, where perhaps they expect the same thing. And so they're hovering out, chilling in their UFO. They look down, and they see all of the drama and craziness that's going on. So they see citizens getting pulled off the street for protesting by the—what is it? The Department of Homeland Security— I'm not sure I have the right department, but the agents that Trump has sent out to stop protests because black people are being killed. So there's this whole racist conflict that's been brewing for 400 years, which is unresolved and which is, again, coming to the forefront. They see our response to the coronavirus, how people are completely paralyzed by fear. And instead of saying, you know what, we're going to be healthy because healthy people generally aren't affected as much. It might be difficult, but they can get through it so focus on your health. Instead of doing that, we're living in the state of panic where we're terrified about infections, hospitalizations, overwhelming of the healthcare system, and there's constant reluctance to leave the house for some people. Whereas other people have turned this into a political issue and they're going outside and they're talking about their constitutional right not to wear a mask. And basically you've got two sets of people who are screaming at each other. It's very hard to get anything done. Or you look at nationalism, this sense of pride about how great we are as a country, and not just the U.S. We see this in China. We see this in India. The Philippines, we're great. Foreigners are terrible. We're right. Everyone else is wrong. It's an infantile view. It's the view of a three- or four-year-old child who just has a sense that the universe revolves around them and hasn't been able to step out of that mindset. So our visitors from outer space— are sitting there, they're hanging out, and at first they think this is a joke. And after a while, they start shaking their heads, and they feel really sad. They feel sad because they're looking at people, and people ultimately are the same. We all want to be happy. We want to be healthy. We want to thrive. But the things that we do are counterproductive. So in trying to achieve that health and happiness, we're attacking other people. We're living in fear. We're hanging on to certain things. We're identifying ourselves based on immediate conditions which are bound to change, which create instability and uncertainty. And they're looking at this like, man, how did this species get it so wrong? How did they go from a world or a life, which is pretty simple, uh, which is just about living, about being present, about developing good relationships with people, expressing yourself, being creative, focusing on that sort of thing, to creating so much drama and conflict in the mind, and living in a way which is completely disconnected from reality. So unfortunately, our visitors are shaking their heads. They're feeling bad for us. At the same time, they're thinking, we dealt with this problem a million years ago. We overcame it. We have no desire to be dragged back into this drama. So we're going to leave. So we never meet the hypothetical visitors from outer space. They're disgusted. They never want to come back. And that really sums up the state of humanity today. So let's talk about this a little bit, Z. You came up with this analogy. Why do you think we've turned into such a cosmic circus?
1: Well, Vin, I've had the opportunity to travel the world. And what I found in all of my travels is the commonality of people when you travel. And I've also seen other interesting things. I've seen that the people who don't travel, they imagine the world to be a certain way based on what they don't know about the world. They imagine us as being a very divided. And in doing that, they create the divide and why it's important, I think, and valuable to, to develop the ability to be a dispassionate observer so you can really um, discern whether you're, a, you're whether you're a character in or a attending a visitor to this cosmic circus. And earlier we, we decided to say the cosmic circus because I initially in, in, in a rageful moment just said the cosmic shit Show because I watch some of the things going on and the things that you hear from people on a daily basis that are circus-like, it's freak show-like. And there's a few things. So in traveling, I was sharing with you earlier, I've traveled to India a number of times. I've always been drawn to India since I was a small child. And you know the story I told when I was a very small child in grade school Um, There was a a very pretty little Indian girl that sat up in front, and I, I knew she was an Indian girl because people said she was an Indian girl. And I was just attracted to her, and I remember getting up the nerve. I'm six, seven, eight years old, whatever. I get up the nerve to give her a kiss. So one of my buddies hit the fire alarm, and the bell's ring, and we have to do the evacuation. So I wait to be the last kid up from evacuation. They're lining up all the kids in the fire drill. And I get up to full speed. I'm sprinting. And I sprint and I'm coming at full speed up the line of kids. And I get right to where she is and I plant a little kiss on her cheek. And it felt amazing. Her skin was so soft. She smelled like uh, you know um, bananas and cocoa butter or something. And I was in heaven, but I'm still running at full speed. And I turned to look forward and I ran right into a pole. Smashed my head into the pole. Hit it so hard, I was off my feet for a minute and hit the ground and completely unconscious. And as I woke up, splayed out on the ground, the little girl was standing over me rubbing my head saying are you okay and i had the knot about a size of a golf ball on my head and i said i'm great i feel wonderful so i knew then you know that there was a certain type of woman or girl that i was attracted to right and as you know like yourself we're men of the world so we've dated slept with engaged every woman on the planet Um, But I always had this subtle attraction towards a certain appearance, big eyes, things like that, right? Uh, Fast forward, I'm living in India, traveling to India. I have girlfriends, things like that, friends, buddies, relatives, so to say. And back in the 80s, I'm in India. And I've always felt welcome. I've always understood it. I adapted to the culture. Then go through the 90s. I'm an Indian, early 2000s. And then I start hearing this stuff about racism in India. Indians hate the blacks, the Kalu, the black. I said, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. You know why? Because when you go there, almost everybody's black. So when I would hear this, I would say, how, what is it that, uh, what, what are you talking about? You hate yourself? Have you looked in the mirror? You hate yourself? Then I started seeing bio data where they have the, we prefer fair skin. And the first time I saw that, I said, that's weird. What do you mean fair? I thought that meant people with no pimples or something or, or smooth skin or something. I didn't know what they were talking about. And they said, yeah, we don't, you know, you're, you're wheatish or dark. I said, what, what? Wheat? Dark? What, what kind of wheat are you talking about? Whole wheat? Uh, Bleached flour wheat? What, what are you talking about? Then I got it. I got it. Okay. Um, but this is all over the world because we've exported all over the world a certain standard of good and bad. Black is bad. White is good. Fair is white. Unfair is black. Um, Black magic is bad. White magic is good. A white lie is you can get into heaven with a white lie, but not a black lie. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I've heard all this, but I realize that it's a foolish idea, notion. It's stupid. I just never bought it. I've always liked who I am, I feel good about who I am, and I always surrounded myself with people who felt the same way about me I felt about myself. The problem comes when you have no sense of yourself. When your observations of yourself are based on other people's illusion of you and their life, that's where you have problems that begins the circus that begins the freak show of life there are other things when it comes to friendships i've met people that didn't have friends strange thing i've met a lot of people that don't have close friendships well i have close friendships going back over 50 years i have friends that i had as a child that are my friends to this day i've had friends from my teenage years Anybody who works with me and hangs out long enough, they'll run into somebody I've known for 30 plus years who just stops by. And we have an amazing story. Just the other day, my, my dear friend, uh, Amin, Joselito Santos, came in. I mean, reminded me we met in 1984, and he's like uh, just one of the dearest people I know. Well, well how does that happen? How is that possible you, that people don't have friendships? You don't have friendships because you're incapable of offering yourself as an individual with an open heart. You're incapable of enduring and sharing difficult moments and hardships with people because you understand the difficult moment is the planting of the seed that takes deep root that produces a blossoming product. If you just want the blossom but not the effort it takes to plant and cultivate the seed. You have nothing else. So throughout my life, it's always been pretty easy for me. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, Vin, but it's been easy for me to be open-hearted with people because I like myself, I'm okay with me, and I see other people in myself. So I will always offer my heart to people. And sometimes it's hard because people are selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, egocentric. But underneath that, everybody is kind of, everybody that is not, excuse me, everybody's not a sociopath or psychopath, has that yearning to connect. It's very natural to connect and to be a part of and want to be with. And also then the like-mindedness comes out and then you go through something with that person. You go through ups and downs. And then you make a real quick assessment that the downs are worth it because the ups are so wonderful. So that becomes kind of a training ground for all relationships, right? You have a, 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 a boss you work for, and you have different bosses. You have the difficult boss, and you have the other boss that's really trying to fulfill the mission that you guys are mutually on, and he's pushing you to be your best, or she's pushing you to be your best. And you have the person that's just a um, a, a narcissist with no end to their, um, their cruelty. So you know one job you can keep and you can grow with the company, another job is just gonna be a, a stepping stone to somewhere else. Relationships, going back to that the same way. You go through something with somebody a misunderstanding. You work it out. You have a deeper understanding. When I find people that don't have friends, they've never had conflict with the person or they've never been able to get past the stage of understanding and getting to know the uncomfortable part. So they're not able to observe the big picture. They're only going on that moment of primalcy and please me, please me, satisfy. What can I get from you? They find themselves empty and alone and they wonder why. They think it is a whim of fate. And that's why when you have the ability to be the dispassionate observer, to step away, you can see how things are coming together, how things start to form. As an observer, you can step back and put yourself on a different plane of observation. You can see why the pandemic is such a challenge. It is in the nature of people to want to be with others. It is also in the low nature of people who have no self-identity to to define themselves by being around others. So if suddenly you tell those people they can't be around other people, you're gonna create a lot of stress and problems on two different fronts. One is on the front of the mass ignorance where people just can't sit and still and be by themselves. And then on the other front where people cannot act out their intimacy and nourish the visceral loop they have with others with no defining time frame. So if you say, hey, I'm going to go to sea for six months, your loved one feels pretty good about that. You know, they're going to miss you, but they know they're going to have the calendar. They're going to say, in six months, I'm going to see you again. This is great. I can wait it out. But if you just go and they say, well, when are you coming back? He say, I have no idea. You've introduced such a degree and level of uncertainty into their life that because part of them is themselves is defined by their relation with you, it puts them in a stressful situation. That's why the pandemic is problematic because there's no timetable or time frame and people feel caged and trapped. If the statesman of the day would simply say, "As far as we know, we're going to get back to you every month and let you know what's going to happen next month. It would bring people, it wouldn't change much other than people would be much more relaxed because you'd see them hovering around, Their computer TV screen every month and they'd be talking about, okay, we have one more month or they're going to look at it again. month. that's much better, much better, much better. It's not as vague. But as an observer, you can do that when you're not observing, when you're just sitting there um, in the mass flow with a a dim perspective. you, You can't think that way. And so I'm covering a lot of things, Vin, and I think you can home it in. But there's a there's a great benefit and advantage to honing your skills as an observer. It requires one to understand the workings of observation, the way that we see with all of our senses, how to subjugate the senses, step away, and understand what you're really looking at, and see the trends of things. It requires also a bit of understanding a brain structure, the mechanics of the brain, why we paint a picture with the prefrontal cortex, why the binary parts of our brain, the fight-or-flight mechanisms, are always waiting for input from the other parts of the brain and you can easily trigger the fight-or-flight mechanism with misinformation and so forth. So by understanding that, you can make those small adjustments as you're moving on your journey and you encounter all the environmental and social influences that can sway the mind. If you're observing, you can see how that works and take uh, uh, greater control, or as I like to say, stewardship of your mind and your behavior. Thus, you can manipulate your environment into a, a much healthier environment.
0: Suzy, so you're right. You've covered a lot of ground. And I think this discussion about the brain is very useful. The way I think about it, we spend so much time trying to understand the world outside, how it works. We can run simple science experiments to figure out cause and effect. But there's very little time that we spend understanding ourselves and how we're wired. And I think the trap that a lot of us fall into, we take that as a given. So if you think about a computer as a basic analogy, if that computer has a certain set of software programs that run, if you take that as a reality and unchangeable, Whatever the output is of the programs, that's something that you have to live with. And if that makes you miserable, there's nothing you can do about it. But if you step back and you say, I'm the architect, I can actually reprogram the computer and get it to work to my advantage, then you have a lot more control. And you can start moving in directions that serve your interests better, that align outcomes with whatever you're searching for as an individual, So to bring this from the abstract to the practical, I think the power of narrative and just what we pick up from the behavior of other people in society forms such a strong component of our reality, we have to guard against that and understand what the constituents are of that software in our mind, whether it makes sense or whether we want to change it. So to give a few examples, you talked about race. We all want to be happy. We can't be happy if we don't like ourselves. So if we've bought into this whole narrative that it's bad to be brown, it's bad to be black, we need to aspire to be white, and if you're not white, you're not going to like yourself, how are you ever going to be content? Every day, that's going to eat away at you. You're going to look in the mirror. You're going to try the skin whitening cream. You'll try to stay out of the sun. You'll try and find a life partner who's Caucasian or who's got a lighter shade, And you're always in this frenzy trying to deny the reality of who you are. But if you step back and you say, where does that standard come from? Well, that standard comes from a lot of things that you've internalized. Now, is that standard correct? If you do a little more investigation, you might say, no, it's not. There are plenty of intelligent people, accomplished people who aren't white. There's a standard of beauty, which could be white or not white. There are plenty of beautiful people. I think there's beauty in diversity. So you do a little bit of digging and you say, hmm, this whole narrative that I've adopted, that's been governing the way that I think about myself, the choices that I make in life, it's not working for me. It doesn't make any sense. Let me change that. Let me move to a mode of self-acceptance and I can move forward from there. I can stop wasting time and energy trying to change something that's impossible to change. And even if I do change it, it doesn't really do any good except satisfy some artificial standard that I shouldn't have had in the first place. I think about some of the other behaviors that people have and it's simple stuff like if we're afraid, our response to being afraid is to stay away from threats and not take any risk and protect ourselves. Well, I think that's fine in the short term, but eventually it means that we're not fit. We can't adapt to our environment. We're not in a position to deal with threats when they arise. So that whole process of avoiding threat at all costs ends up costing us because we never develop conviction in ourselves, and it actually reinforces our sense of helplessness and makes the situation worse. Or if you think about the whole consumer-oriented nature of our society, there's this idea that if I just get more, if I have more money, uh, more status, more whatever it is, then I'll be happy. But the reality is that the world constantly changes. Everything is always in flux. And if we hold on to things that are unstable, it's like building your reality on a foundation of sand. And when that foundation collapses, you're gonna feel unmoored. You're gonna feel like you're lost at sea. You're not gonna have an identity, a sense of self. And even if something doesn't collapse, you're always gonna worry that it does. So you're gonna be terrified that you lose the money, you lose the job, you lose the relationship, whatever it is. You're going to hold on tightly to that. It's going to cause anxiety, stress. It's not conducive to contentment and healthy living. So I think these are examples of the pathologies that we operate under, the narratives and the misdirection that we follow. And I think when we start examining it really critically, we adopt the perspective of the visitor from outer space where you take a look at this and you say, this is totally insane. We've got people who are looking for contentment. They're looking for acceptance. They're looking for stillness. They're looking for love, but they're doing all the wrong things. In fact, the things they're doing are making their situation worse. So it's almost like they're running in the opposite direction. And since they don't know anything else, the worse the situation gets, the more they try doing the same thing over and over. It's like that analogy about uh, someone with a hammer. And if the only tool that you have in your toolkit is a hammer, everything in the world looks like a nail. And you keep on trying the same thing over and over, even if it's not working, even if it's making your situation worse. And I think eventually you end up at a point where you're just in total despair. You hit some crisis and at that crisis point, hopefully that provokes some change. But oftentimes it doesn't. Oftentimes the direction might change, but the substance might not change. So instead of focusing on money, Maybe you focus on charity, but you're measuring yourself by the size of the charity that you build up, or you're measuring yourself because you're talking about all the great things you're doing to your friends. So it's still the same standard of relative comparison, for an example, uh, that governs behavior. So I think the trick is really to be able to step away from all of that. And as you're saying, observe the brain, observe the way we're making decisions, understand the reason that we're responding the way that we are? What are the narratives that we've created and internalized that ultimately govern our emotional responses, our moods, and therefore our behavior? And if those are serving us great, let's continue on down that path, no problem. Uh, We can even cultivate the narratives that are doing some good for us. But if there are narratives that are not serving us, uh, like I need to just get more, I just need a little more money, I just need a little more excitement, that's a game we're not gonna win. That's setting ourselves up for failure. It's something that we are guaranteed to lose. And why do we wanna lose this game of life? Why not change the rules or change the nature of the game so that we can actually win and we can feel happy and we can feel content? So I think so much of what you're saying, it's very powerful, this concept of observing oneself. In fact, it's the name of our podcast, The Dispassionate Observer. And I think of the analogy, The literature talks about being able to see in a very still body of water. So if the passions are stirred up and you're always responding in anger or fear or whatever the case may be, it's like staring in a pool of water with some silt at the bottom and that silt has been disturbed. So the water is cloudy and you can't see clearly. But if you can step back from the passions, from the emotional responses and look at yourself objectively, suddenly you have that clarity. And in that clarity comes knowledge, in that knowledge comes agency, through that agency comes action. And I think that's really where we can start healing a lot of the damage that we do to ourselves. So Z, if that's the case, and we agree with the fact that our perception might be distorted, some of our narratives might not serve us properly, how do we take that next step? What is the process for being able to step away from ourselves and observe ourselves more objectively so that we can start course correcting.
1: Well, Vin, the first thing I think, and, and always will go back to this knowledge is freedom. True knowledge and wisdom will liberate you. You talked earlier about, and we t- touched on it a little bit, how is our brain, how does it work? What is the architecture of our brain? Well, in short, you know, there you can read a few books on, on brain architecture. Um, you can also read wonderful books on the human species, *Sapien*. Um, it's one good book. Um, the brain that changed itself on neuroplasticity. Um, there's a uh, women's brains or the biological difference between men and women. That's a great book. And for those who listen to us and hang out with us, and and they understand my spiel and my life philosophy, and they can they use it in their life. Always striving to increase your knowledge, your wisdom, and your skill is a sure way of addressing whatever ails you. So part is the acquisition of knowledge. The next is the in-depth critique of that knowledge, the, the, the Buddha consciousness, And lastly, of course, is the development of the skills and refining the skills that you've been taught. Don't just sit there, read and study, and not act on it. Don't have a bunch of diet books and don't do them. Don't um, do a bunch of uh, seminars and workshops and don't apply the principles. That's part of the skill building to live. So in short, if we look at the way, let's just say our basic brain function, we have a prefrontal cortex that's like a movie theater. We have a, th- a hippocampus in our brain that is like the scriptwriter, a library. And then we have a reptilian part of the brain, which is the audience. So most of what we see is not what we see, it's an illusion. Most of what we hear is an illusion. That's why people don't listen well. They want to hear certain things and certain things they don't want to hear. That's what the whole social media, internet, Facebook is all about. They have bizarre stuff on Facebook. They have all this. I think some of the companies are taking things off that are so bizarre and absurd because what they didn't realize, because they didn't do their homework, is that when you can talk to people one way, meaning that they're taking information in, but they have no way of critiquing that information or having feedback, they tend to absorb most of the information. And it goes way back to when they developed a a government agency called the FCC, the uh, Federal Communications Commission. Why? Because years ago a guy got on the radio and said that space aliens were attacking the earth. It created complete chaos and pandemonium. People were shooting their neighbors. Um, There was all sorts of rioting and looting because I believe HG Wells or Warren Wells or one of those got on the radio and he did War of the Worlds. And because people listened to it but they had no way of affirming or 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 figuring out or, or 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 any way of referencing whether it was true, they took it as truth. So too right now on the internet, you know, people send me stuff. Google, hey, there's a lady now who said she's extracted uh, alien DNA and she's uh, has the cure for COVID, and they finally took it off. But I got a reply from a doctor who I didn't even know what to say when he asked me, Hey, did you see this doctor? has proven that this drug is working. Well, here's part of the problem. The doctor is a genius, brilliant, wonderful man that I love dearly. But he also listens to a lot of news from a particular news source and stream, and that's developed a life narrative. So you you have to be very careful because I can't say, look, this is bogus, it's uh, bizarre, because that would shock his reality, and create quakes in our relationship. So I just listened. So, yeah, I'll take a look at it. But I already knew that once the lady started talking about space alien DNA and Jesus Christ, uh, she had nothing else to say to me. I had no. I didn't want to need to listen to her anymore. Um, but he listened, but he didn't hear the alien part or the the baby Jesus part because that's the way our senses work. We have cognitive dissonance is built in to the human brain function as part of a preserving mechanism. If you are a survival, me- if you are running from predators, and you happen to hear a bird chirping that sounds musical, we don't want to stop and listen to the birds sing while a predator's right on our tail. So our brain will eliminate that frequency of sound or communication because it's not relevant to our survival. Now, if you know the brain does all this, it will even change your sense of smell. You could be in a restaurant with all sorts of aromas and smell, and if you're in love, you can smell your lover's perfume over the the smell of curry and chili powder. The brain will discern those scents and fragrances because that is what is most relevant to your breeding mechanism at that time. Survival, breed, survival, breed. So we have all these and or gates, these binary gates in the different parts of our brain that inevitably gives us a solution to the our survival or reproduction. And then there are times when they go haywire, right? A young woman came to me and says, hey, what do I do? I'm completely asexual. What do I do? Well, she didn't know about GMO foods. She didn't know about phytoestrogens. So I said, well, you've been eating all this stuff. She said, I didn't know that was a real thing. I didn't know that GMO could affect you that way. I said, yeah, if you go home and shovel down a bunch of synthetic estrogens and things like that, your sex drive is probably going to shut off. Oh, oh my goodness. But she was receptive enough to hear it because there was no bear. Other people are not receptive either because they want to believe that their country or their corporation is always in their best interest. So any opinion that doesn't fit that will simply be deleted from the processing units of the brain. So if we, I'm not gonna get too far into this, Vim, but if we understand the architecture of our brain, you understand why the ancients called it maya, the illusion of our life, the illusion. Life is an illusion. It is a dream. And what makes it real is us. We make our life real. That's why no two people see the same thing the same way, even if it's right in front of them, an event. That's why people don't like the resolution to a problem because it doesn't necessarily fit their ideal of the world. There are many health issues that can be easily resolved with minor lifestyle changes. But lifestyle is the illusion of self and who I am and how I should be. There are people that believe they are far more interesting than they really are because of egocentrism. Egocentrism is a very base mechanism that makes you want to live. But out of control, it will make you kill. And it's very consumptive and it takes a lot of energy. That's why the yogis always tell you to suppress the ego. Because not everything is a life and death threat. Right? So somebody called me up and they were, upset about something, and they said, well, I'm embarrassed to talk about it. And I said, why are you embarrassed? Why do you care what I think of you? I have low opinion of you anyway, and no matter what you do, that's not going to change. Now that you can accept that I have a low opinion of you, let's just have a talk. And they said, oh, God, that's a relief. Now I don't have to strive for your approval. I said, yeah, now we can just talk, and you can tell me whatever thing you have to tell me. So, If you understand how the brain works, then you can manipulate it. But not so much that you want to manipulate other people's brains. You want to manipulate your own brain so that things work out right for you. You want them to work out for you so you know that you're creating illusions in your mind about reality. You ever had trouble making a phone call? God, I don't know what this person's going to think about me or say. That's in your head. You didn't make the phone call. You didn't have the conversation. Oh my God, if I say this, I'm going to lose everything. Really? Or have you painted a picture in that movie theater, the frontal, prefrontal cortex, that shows a, it's a disaster movie, but you can then reappoint the brain, repurpose the brain and make it into more of a thriller instead of a horror movie. You can turn it into a love story. You can do whatever you want to do, but you need to know how your brain works. What we see now in the chaos and what's going on in the world it are, are complete separations from reality. I just talked to a cousins in the Congo and they were telling me, yeah, we don't have any COVID over here. few people from France had COVID. And she her take on it was they don't believe they can get it. They don't get it because they had so much malaria, so much dengue fever, so much yellow fever. They've taken all kinds of vaccines They've done it They or they survived it. That the COVID is so low on the list of threats to their life that nobody gets it. But I say, yeah, that's great. And because that is their reality, that's what's happening. They don't have it. I know that sounds terrible, but you think about medications that work on the placebo effect. I challenge anyone who hears us to get yourself a PDR. A physician's desk reference. Look up any medication in that desk reference. It has a vague explanation of how the medication works. And then it says in our studies, it showed X high percentage, 20, 30, 40 percent of people taking this drug benefited from the placebo, the sugar or salt pill they gave them because they believed and had faith in the medication. The brain is very powerful. But if you do not take control of it, it can destroy you. People are paralyzed by fear. Every day I just see just the, the multitudes of people and then there you, you, you cruise through social media and it's just a disaster. Just a disaster of ignorance and fear. So what can we do? Enlighten ourselves. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Take five minutes out of your day to read a damn book. And when, if you feel like you can't read it, then read it again until you get something out of it. And then try and and, and, and practice that knowledge. Here's something here you can practice. Take a few days out and work on your dispassionate observer ability. Imagine yourself as that space traveler hovering over the stratosphere of the earth. And you're just watching the circus of humanity Don't judge it. Just watch the behavior. Listen to how people come to the opinions and beliefs they have. Is it based on empirical data, evidentiary examination, and critical thinking? Or is it just based on the whim of the wind? And you will find that the vast majority of people's opinions are based on the whim of the wind. Just, I heard it from a trusted source. I trust that source, I believe it. Because you know what, I don't have time to do any type of deep examination or contemplative work. So I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go to a source that I like that's packaged the way I like it and I'm gonna form my view of the world based on that. So the Dispassion Observer Tool requires you to pursue knowledge and it will never betray you because having knowledge and then skills to exact upon that knowledge is true liberation. It can help you navigate situations, get a better hold or grasp of of situations, have a better understanding of where you are, where you locate yourself in the universe of humanity and how to move through there. It gives you a better take on the people in your life, You know the boundaries and limits of that individual. You know how to navigate various personalities because you have knowledge and you also understand the workings of the brain. How much of yourself is reliant on the approval of others? How much of your reality is shaped by past events that in the magnifying lens of the moment are completely different than what happened then? How, How does your worry and your anxiety about the future act upon your decision today. If you understand how these fight-flight, fight-or-flight mechanisms are being constantly throttled and triggered, you can then subdue them and take care of them so that your decisions are being made not by the primitive one-two of fight-or-flight, but by the more higher levels of consciousness based on critical thinking, deductive reasoning, and, 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 and measured and regulated emotional temperament. Then you can see the world in its moment, in its present. You can also observe trends as they arise. When you're doing this, the pitfall to this is that you are now responsible for yourself, which is a place that no one wants to be.
0: Yeah, Z, I got you. I think the insanity that you talk about is very clear that if we're always looking to confirm our view of reality, we end up serving that view at all costs. So we invest a lot of energy seeking out information that just confirms a belief, avoiding people or avoiding ideas that might disrupt that belief, dealing with the effects of a false narrative. So the emotional pain, the anger, the frustration, the inability to get the relationship we want to get ourselves back in shape, whatever it is, there is a huge cost that we have to holding up this illusion that we create. And we talked about this a while ago. I think we did a piece called The Fabric of Our Reality, how our reality is a composite of all these different beliefs. And if we hold on to that too tightly and we're not willing to allow it to evolve, then Each of those beliefs supports each of the other beliefs, and we can't let anything move because if one thing changes, if we give up our idea that it's better to be white, maybe that affects our self-esteem, that affects all the things we've done in the past, the way that we've treated other people, and that becomes a lot to process and rationalize. So without a certain amount of fluidity, a certain amount of humility, we're not going to be able to progress and get to the state you're talking about, which is be a lot more scientific step back, examine the evidence, and manage the brain. So I think that one thing I'm taking away from what you're saying, we know that the brain responds in certain ways. We know that we're wired to think through worst case scenarios, to plan for the future, to play some dire scene over and over in our mind. But we can step back and ask, is that serving us? It might serve us a little bit. It's useful sometimes to contemplate a potential threat or future outcomes. So maybe we get some value from it, but if we know that the brain's tendency is to keep on going through this over and over unchecked, then we regulate it and we say, you know what, I've played out the scenario, I understand that there is a possible threat, now I'm going to put that aside and I'm going to take action anyway, I'm not going to be paralyzed or I'm going to shift my attention somewhere else because I've already gotten all of the information or all the utility that I can get from going through this preparation process. So Z, I think what you've laid out, the theory of the brain, being able to understand how it works, and with that awareness, being able to correct and maybe approach life a bit more openly, get away from our confirmation bias, remember that we're never going to have the whole truth, that it's okay not to have the whole truth. I think that's another trick that the brain plays, this need that we have for certainty and control and predictability, which frankly doesn't exist. Reality is very complex. We're never going to know the full picture. But because we want to, I guess we desire a level of certainty which is unrealistic. And so then we grab on to very black and white narratives. And we hold on to those as absolute truths. And we feel secure somehow because we know what's right and we know what's wrong. Whereas reality is more nuanced. So let's say we're able to accept all of that and we go into life and we say, I'm going to be more scientific, I'm going to be more objective, I'm going to watch out for some of the pitfalls, for this endless cinema that goes on in my mind, for my emotional responses, and I'm going to try and be as dispassionate as possible so I can get to the truth. Or even if I can't get to the absolute truth, I can get to a vision of the world that serves me. And I'm also going to be fluid. So if I get new information, I'll update that vision. What happens when we realize... We really don't know that much. So regardless of how much analysis we do, how much of our time we spend, we only scratch the surface. And we have to make so many decisions in life, we can't spend all of our time analyzing things forever. I mean, At some point, we have to rely on other people, we have to rely on experts, or we just have simple heuristics, which is, yeah, I don't know if this is a perfect solution, maybe there's a downside, but there's not enough time for me to investigate this fully. Even if I did investigate this fully, I'm not going to be certain what reality is. How do we deal with that tension of, number one, figuring out how far to take the investigation? And number two, maybe with the realization that we really don't know that much at all. And if we don't know that much at all, what does that mean? How do we proceed in life when the beliefs that we have are inherently tenuous?
1: Well, I take from many traditions— that have always given you warnings and sanctions about the disruption of your life by, by means of the pursuit of knowledge. That They give you these warnings because whatever you thought the world is going to be, once you awaken from the grave of ignorance and you pursue knowledge, your whole world will turn upside down. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, they talk about the uh, ancestors or, or, or Christianity that the biggest, the first sin committed was knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge. Think about it. The first sin. Now, in Hinduism, sin means doing something with lack of virtue, right? So you're just trying to do something, but it has no real virtue behind it, and um, that's a sin. In the judeo christian tradition, there are different ways that they interpret sin. But it's important to know that because all traditions have a warning, but it's not saying don't do it. It's warning you that your world will turn upside down when you wake up from the dream of ignorance. And from that moment, you will begin to pursue knowledge. And you can do it as an individual or sometimes couples do it or families collectively, siblings, all of a sudden, they come into an understanding. It's like opening up that hidden file cabinet in your parents' house and you find out that one of you is adopted, right? It's like, oh my God, nothing changed other than you open a box of information that you didn't have before. That's what knowledge is. The word knowledge is the ledge of knowing. Go to the edge of knowing and then jump off. That's real knowledge. And then again, your life will be disrupted. What I ask people to do is take all the bumper stickers off your car. That sounds like a simple thing. But don't promote any view. And just observe others. Observe, why did you do that? Why did you want to project your opinion? Why did you want to elicit excitement or contempt from anybody? I'm talking about take it all off. Baby on board, any of that stuff. Offer nothing. Just move through life as the dispassionate observer, as a ghost. And you will be surprised at what you see and what you gain knowledge of. And as you get more skillful in this, you will find more and more information readily available the minute you unblock and you stop trying to tell people about you in one way or another. There's another thing we can do with this and why it benefits you is to train yourself to listen and be quiet for a moment after you've listened to process the information through the numerous processing methods in your brain. The brain will take one unit of information and it can split it up in a number of ways. And it will take something really simple and make it very complex. So what if somebody said something to you and that's all that they said? They didn't, there was no nuance, there wasn't an attitude, there wasn't a history with that person. Imagine how clear that communication would be and, and with yourself, exercising that. There by understanding and mastering the brain architecture, you can understand what's constantly playing on the moment of reality, the dynamic moment of reality that we live in and you can make corrections. Also, when you hear things that are false, don't try to filter it in such a way to make it less false. Reject it 1,000 times over and reject it again. We talked about self-hatred in the South Asian community and other communities because they, like many other people, have bought into a common agreement about race. Race doesn't exist, period. Stop talking about it like that. It doesn't exist. Cultures exist, race doesn't. The next thing is with health. Most of your health problems can be addressed with lifestyle changes. So, why aren't you doing those things? That's what knowledge will help you do. It will help you investigate. See, a knowledgeable person can investigate, a scientist can do research. Let's say you do nothing else but ask yourself, why am I not changing? Don't romanticize it. Don't overinvest in. Why am I not changing? Why do I still go to Kentucky Fried McNuggets when I know that I have cholesterol problems, and high blood pressure? Why don't I read a book on anti-inflammatory diets, follow it to the letter, so I won't be in pain? But in doing that, I won't be able to go to the Greason and Shack and, 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 and Kentucky Fried McNugget place, which is part of my, my social um, element, right? It's part of my how I socialize. So that requires a dynamic change in the way you socialize. So then you realize it's not that you don't want to be healthy. It's just that being unhealthy is part of your socialization. But the only way you can face that is with knowledge, because the ego will interfere, and it will reinforce itself, even foolish things, and you'll find yourself stuck, repeating, 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 and what they call then that maya, and then you get caught up in the endless cycle of, of death and rebirth, and you're just, you're just groundhog today all over again. You talk about <clears throat> other markers of health, mental health. Most people are depressed because depression is measured by elation and mania. They have these crazy expectations of life through entitlement. A good life is a simple life. Nice routines, nice weather patterns, nice ebbs and flow. A really good life is calm seas. If you're constantly looking for excitement, you're probably going to be depressed. If you need to bungee jump every week and parachute and a shark dive and all this every weekend to feel alive, um, you're pretty close to death. If just cruising down the road, reaching over to your loved one and holding their hand and uh, going over to, instead of Stinky McBurger, go over to uh, whatever, Veggie Grill, and you guys talk about how good the french fries are at Veggie Grill. That's a good life. That's when you know you're living a good life. Welcome to the good life. Easy, easy. Because life on earth is hard anyway. Um, things will happen anyway. Fate will visit you anyway. So why make it more difficult? So as a dispassionate observer, you work on your, your technique. Um, learn to value your, the emptiness of human life. Not the fullness, but the emptiness, the quiet, the stillness. You are one of eight billion. One of eight billion. Be okay with not, with not being that interesting. Even if you're reasonably interesting, you'll only attract so many people. If your network is the best network in the world, most of the world has never heard of your network. That's just the nature of life. It's too many people doing too many different things. Be okay with that. If you're ego bound and you want constant validation, know the way the brain works, that will trigger your fight or flight mechanism and you will be upset, depressed, manic, all kinds of stuff. So yes, the suppression of ego, very important to be an observer. And so there, these are a few things we can all do, even though they, 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 they might sound out there, but they really do work. Um, set very boring schedules. I say boring because I hear a lot of people use that word. I never get bored, but I hear people use that word. Some, even my little boys and like, hey, I'm bored. I say that's because you're a spoiled brat. My fire is spoiled as shit. Got everything. Got all kind of toys. He's got everything you can. Everything I didn't have, I gave him, and it's never enough. So that's the beginning of being a spoiled brat. So most of us and almost all of us listening to it, have everything we need. We may not have everything we want, but we have everything we need. And I mean that on a soul level. How about review those things, polish those things up, like they're, 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 they're um, symbols of antiquity and their valuable heirlooms. Just what you have. Read books. Read. Please, people, read. Read. Study. Sit with knowledgeable people and have discourse and discussion and gain knowledge. It gives you tools to navigate the world. It it, it helps you navigate this journey. So hover above. Be, again, as you said, Vin, be that space traveler. Because in truth, in truth, we are space travelers. We're sitting on a little bitty rock, moving through infinite parsecs of space, traveling at thousands of miles an hour, into the unknown. And we're, we're insulated here thinking that we're the biggest thing happening when we're the least significant thing. We're just a small thing. Enjoy your smallness. Enjoy that. And then amplify and embrace that subatomic particle that is you. It's so nice to be with people who care for you. Nurture those relationships in the way you can nurture them. Do your best as an observer to serve to your limit the thing that gives you energy. Don't give energy to things that don't give you energy back. Preserve your health at all costs. But that requires shifts. I go through that myself. I have to know when I'm tired, I need to shut down. I tend to um, offer aid and and support to people when I can to the point where sometimes I'm drained. So I've learned to set boundaries, which is very difficult. Um, But it's nurturing and it's holistic. But you can't do that unless you can observe it. Then you just feel like bad things are happening to you. Most of the bad things that happen to us We have invited that into our space energetically and materially. So change the RSVP in your life. Invite things into your life that help you. And when you have to do your duty, know the limits of that duty. If you're running your business and things like that, it's a business. It's not you. It's a business. Fulfill your duties, live up to your obligations, show up when you're supposed to, and get the hell out of there as soon as you can. Save most of your energy. For things that give you energy back. But you won't know that until you observe the workings of things. Be very careful of the things you let into your mental, into your your mental arena. Don't add to the horror movie. Most of the news is bad news. I sit here on this internet uh, and it's just a disaster. It's just a flaming disaster. It's a car wreck. But I accept that I enjoy watching car wrecks. When I was a kid, I used to watch Demolition Derby. I used to love Demolition Derby. Who's going to T-bone who? People go to car races to watch car wrecks. But the difference is you need to know that's what you're doing. Know that's what you're doing so you can control and regulate. So you can control and regulate. Okay? So be very aware of that. By simply, simple awareness can re- Uh, realign you by being aware of your behavior and what you're doing. Learn to be able to take constructive criticism. We talked about that before, but as as an observer, you want to listen. That doesn't mean everything someone critiques you on you implement, but listen. Because not only are they offering you information about yourself from their observation of you, but some of it may be correct. Also, When you provide criticism, buffer and filter that so that you understand that you are benefiting from the criticism first. Then the person you're criticizing benefit from it secondly. That means that you criticize them because you plan on them being in your life. You criticize people because you care about them when it comes from a holistic place. And if you live with somebody and their feet stink and you want to have a good night's sleep and be intimate, you ought to be telling them, look... Your feet stink, and you need to eat a mint because I care about you and I want you to be around and I want less friction with us. If I don't care about you, I won't mention it. I just won't invite you to the next sleepover. All right? It's that simple. So, those holistic strategies in relationships. If you're a good friend, be a good friend, free of provisions. But also know the degrees of friendship that each person is there for you. You have certain friends that can handle certain things. Some people can't. Wherever you can be in service and support, do it. When it comes to mentors in your life, people that value you, parental figures, they're going to be dead soon. So whatever you're going to do with them, support them now. If you see people stressed out, suffering, and you can mitigate that suffering, uh, Get, get off your ass and do whatever you can. Go give them a bag of groceries, uh, let them know you love them, whatever. And these are exercises we do to better ourselves individually and promote the idea of the dispassionate observer. You follow me, Vin?
0: Yeah, Z, I'm just going to summarize some of what we've been talking about. We're talking about observation as a way to acquire knowledge. And listening to you, it's interesting because I think a lot of the trick of observation, the ability to acquire knowledge, is removing the impediments to observation. We talked about the ego, the need to define ourselves by certain views and to hammer people over the head with those views. Suppress all of that, put that aside, keep an open mind. We talked about just maintaining an awareness of yourself of your reactions to certain situations, of the reasons why you do certain things, that requires a certain amount of stillness. So all of the chatter, all of the noise that's constantly infiltrating the mind, we need to get rid of that, settle ourselves, so we can be in that state of observation. Uh, We talked about criticism, resistance to criticism. Criticism can come from anywhere. It can be beneficial coming from anywhere, as long as we're open to it and open to learning about how to improve And finally, the sharing of different views, the learning about uh, other people's life experiences, picking up books, going outside of the comfort zone, and making sure that we have enough of a connection to this world and humanity outside of ourselves and our immediate groups uh, so that we can benefit from other people's experience. And I think if we can do that, this observation becomes hopefully a lot easier. It becomes second nature. And then once we have that skill, it's operating in the background. And instead of reflexively going towards the things that support our worldview, if we have that skill of observation, we are reflexively challenging our view. We're seeking new information. We're looking to improve our understanding. And that's only going to help us going forward. And I'll just add one more thing uh, from my own experience, which has been helpful. I think part of the challenge we all have at times particularly people who are very analytical, is this paralysis where you want to have that certainty. And so even if you are looking for knowledge, you don't want to make a decision until you've seen things from every possible angle and you know what the exact right course of action is. You've thought about how to mitigate the downside, how to mitigate the embarrassment, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, whatever it is. And that leads to stagnation. So I think part of The observation and using observation intelligently is to recognize the limits of knowledge that we're never going to have perfect solutions, but that should not be an impediment to action. We should always keep on moving. And over time, as you do move, you figure out what works and what doesn't work. So you start with a certain hypothesis that might lead you in a particular direction. And if that works out great, you can do more of the same thing. If it doesn't, you learn your lesson, you refine your worldview, and you keep on moving. But that knowledge and that observation can only come through the process of moving. Because when we start to stagnate, that, as we talked about last time, we end up in a state of death where there is no new knowledge, there is no advancement. There's only a tremendous amount of energy reinforcing the views that we have or or going through this ridiculous analysis of everything that could happen without actually acquiring knowledge through experience. So with that observation... Don't rely just on the observation, but take that out into the world, field test it, act, and keep on refining your own understanding.
1: That's right, Vin. And you said something, too. I want to remind people, really avoid confirmation bias because that shuts off knowledge. Also, this idea that you, you over process to the point where you're not, you're just stuck. You're waiting for the perfect move, the perfect decision Um, You know, life is, in its purity, imperfect. It's harmonious. So I've made decisions that weren't always the best decisions that led me to innovations that were great innovations, and it made me highly adaptable. And had I made the right decision, so to say, it would have limited my growth. So sometimes getting lost will open up a whole new world for you. It will test your survival skills and you will develop new skill sets, and it will enhance your knowledge base. So you want to be real careful about these kind of false and failed strategies of perfect decision making. You also, you know, we want to be careful when we try to play games that we only, only we win. Sometimes losing can be a win. Sometimes yielding your position on something can offer a greater win, and as we know in relationships, sometimes losing is winning, um, because if it's about the harmony of the relationship, same way with friendships and so forth, you don't always have to be the one that comes out on top. And those things stop growth; they stagnate us, and stagnation is 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 always painful. So you brought up some good points too, Vin. I think we could go on and on, probably our our next work might have to be on just the architecture of the brain for, for everyday folks and what I, how I can tweak the different parts of my brain to clear up some of the illusions and delusions I have about what's going on in my life. And especially during these uncertain times where people are subject to all sorts of uh, negative influences and unhealthy phenomena and and instability, and how we can regain some of that and learn how to ride that wave a little better. So those are some thoughts, Vin, but uh, I, I think we covered quite a bit.
0: And I would say if people remember nothing else, think about the name of this podcast, The Dispassionate Observer, being able to observe without passion, being able to suppress the ego, still the mind, and see what's really going on because it's only when we have that understanding that we can evolve. So let's do that. Focus on awareness, observation, step out of the cosmic circus (laughs) and move to a world, even if it's your own world, uh, that's more productive. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Each five-star review helps us bring you more unique and insightful content. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. Peace.